Welcome to part three of our special series focusing on the ongoing nightmare in Ukraine. In this powerful, thought-provoking episode, we welcome Pavlo, a Ukrainian interpreter who had the no doubt challenging task of working with Paul on his many mysterious activities in the country. Pavlo, like many millions of his fellow citizens, has been forced to leave his home to make an arduous, exhausting journey to relative safety away from the advancing monstrosity of the Russian invading force. In Pavlo's searing testimony, he talks about the reality of the war, the lead-up to it, and his hopes and fears for the next phase. You can read and watch all the news in the world, but hearing firsthand the story of someone living through it is deeply affecting. Normally, we'd hope that you enjoy listening. There really is not much to enjoy here, I'm afraid. But as a record of an ongoing world event, Pavlo's candour and Paul's expertise make for a fascinating and heartrending listen. I'm Matt. I'm John. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is Straight, Straight from the Hot Setter. Pavlo, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I don't know how much Paul's given in your way of information, but we've been running this podcast now for just over a year. We initially started it as a, a bit of a project during COVID to have something to do other than drinking beer in the evenings, to be honest. <laughs> oh, right. Um, okay. And it, taken on a little bit of a life of its own. We were introduced to Paul uh, via his wife, who went to the same school that myself and my friend Matt did, who hopefully will be joining us shortly. Great. Uh, So we started talking to Paul initially about his rather fascinating and totally fictional life, I'm sure. (laughs) 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 And and since then, there's been some major world events. Uh, Firstly, the withdrawal from Afghanistan that was very dear to Paul's heart that we had a fascinating and well heartrending conversation with him about a few months back right. and obviously now his experience of Ukraine yeah, has been very yeah. interesting for us to, to listen to really so sure. when he suggested that you might be able to join us on the call Pavlo clearly it was you know something we we, we jumped you. at thank and you for having love, me no problem at all we'd obviously love to hear your story I thought maybe Paul if you introduce initially how you know Pavlo and and how it came to be that he's joining us today. Well, certainly what happened was that background of us going to Ukraine, after the Crimea, the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, had set up a monitoring team, a special monitoring mission to monitor the Donbass. So there were teams uh, initially in, in the east, the Dnipro, Lviv, and headquarters in, in Kiev. And Pavlo came from Luhansk, where we were based, and... Um, what had happened was that uh, while we were there, things started to heat up as far as a breakdown of the civil society. The little yeah. green men had turned up and yeah. Pavlo was, was one of the key translators, interpreters and general Thank you. person that could see us through some of this stuff. I was privileged to be uh, with you. It was really great that I managed to work with the OSC during that time because Before that, I had worked at university, but at some point, the university had to cease to operate because of the unrest and because of the events happening there. And so I was lucky to still have a job during that time. And it was a pleasure to work with the OEC as a language assistant. And then during that time, I also learned that I got a PhD scholarship from Cambridge to come to Cambridge. So after the conflict at the end of September 2014, I went to, to Cambridge and spent three years there doing my PhD in German literature. So that's my background. It's mostly in uh, language studies, literature, 
and I've worked as a language assistant with the OSC. And through this work, I had the pleasure of working together with Paul um, during that time in 2014. And then I came back home in 2017, but this time not to Luhansk, but to Kiev. And I worked there at a pedagogical university, eventually uh, winning a scholarship, a postdoctoral fellowship to go to Germany on a Humboldt scholarship. And I spent there two years. And then I came back and resumed my work in Kiev. Then, yeah, that was already during the pandemic in 2020. And now I'm in, in Lviv. I left Kiev a few days ago, yeah, because of the events unfolding right now. I'd like to just interject and, and say that Pavlo understates the fact that he was a language assistant. It was at a very crucial time where half the team had been captured by Russian Cossacks at the bequest of the, of the Russians, undoubtedly. And we were looking to evacuate with literally the clothes that we had on our back. And Pavlo was very instrumental in helping us get through, translate various documents that we needed, and actually get out. I was on the last train out of Luhansk. And when we got back to uh, Kharkiv, which is where, at the time, it was the safest place to be, uh, and there was another team based there, Pavlo then, because our team broke up, most yep. of the team decided not to go back. Myself and, and a good friend of mine from, from Denmark carried on the work there and, and went to be attached to the uh, Ukrainian army for a short while. Pavlo carried on working in Kharkiv. I applied to uh, and yeah. uh, And did a fantastic job there in an area which was fraught with political difficulties. So uh, his work was crucial to the success of the mission. A minute ago, Paul, you talked about things heating up. What does that actually look and feel like? Is it a gradual? Is there intelligence that comes in? How does it work? Well, it really is boiling a frog. I guess for me, with my background, I, I had sort of spidey senses that things were going wrong. But for a lot of people that hadn't been involved in that, all of a sudden there was no money in the ATMs. We'd learnt that they'd come along and emptied the ATMs. We'd learnt that the resupply of money had been stopped and all the, the money had been stolen. Food then became scarce. And there was more and more separatists on the streets. People started to leave. That was the big indicator. And all the time, we were very sort of trying to carry on monitoring the political situation where it had switched from being political to being overtly military. We suddenly saw armed people in balaclavas in front of administrative buildings. And it's just, yeah, it's just, just like that. And it develops all around, not just in Luhansk, but in towns uh, around it. So I first worked with the long-term observers of the presidential election that was taking place at that time. And first we used to go to different towns and it looked fine. But then at some point we would arrive in a place and they would hoist a Russian flag on top of the council. And we knew, okay, we need to get out now. And so we would just uh, turn the car around and go away. Do you have any warning of any of this happening at all? As you say, people appear in front of municipal buildings in balaclavas. I mean, if you're living in Ukraine as a Ukrainian speaker, do you hear whispers? Do you hear people talking about bad things about to happen? Or is it is simply as sudden as, like you say, Paul, things start to change and then they just appear? Certainly as far as the international monitor is concerned, we found ourselves one evening with uh, surrounded the hotel with people in balaclavas who were literally just cocking their weapons. Nothing else, no firing and all the rest of it. 
And then they disappeared. The following day, late at night, we would hear people cocking weapons outside our doors. And then there was nothing. Then we would go off to a public building and be told, I'm sorry, you can't come in. And very clearly, the people on the front who you'd known, who were saying, yeah, yeah, OSCE, you can come in and and talk to the politicians, they'd all changed. They weren't the sort of old bearded guy who was a former miner that was now a separatist. These guys were soldiers, professional soldiers. Even though the uniforms might be the same, you could tell. There was no communication. There was no talking. It was niet, uh, and that was it. And so it developed very, very quickly from quasi-separatist movement of relatively friendly people who were talking about Maidan and talking about the general politics and um, propaganda that was bouncing around at the time to being all of a sudden, these are professional soldiers. Like a military operation, for example, it didn't make sense to me as a civilian when I saw streams of them taking uh, military bases or like military commission uh, buildings in Loha. It's just to me, it's not a place of power, of political power in in my city. As a civilian, it didn't make sense to me. Why would you go and storm that building on the outskirts of the city? It's a, Maybe it has some military meaning, but to me as a civilian, it just made no sense. But to them, obviously, as like as a military operation, it made perfect sense. Matt, welcome to the call. Sorry, guys. I had some conflicting orders from my computer, <laughs> which caused a communications breakdown in my unit. Paul, did you have the same problem, or did you know it was half past four GMT? I knew straight away, uh, yeah. you know, because I've got a watch. And did you read the emails as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah, or well, hundreds of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I feel like I got a different <laughs> than everyone else in the unit. And my commanding officer is not going to own up to it. So I just consider that a matter for the military tribunal. Yeah. Matt, I've known you for 30 years at least. You I'm have previous. <laughs> so, Pavli, talk about recent events then. You know, obviously yeah. over here in the Western world, we have press that on the whole gives us a fairly sensationalized view of what happens, I think it's fair to say. The right. BBC, even them, who are generally speaking a little bit straighter down the line than some of the, the other media, and um, they do tend to even now sensationalize things a little bit. But we went from a couple of weeks ago seeing Russian troops amassing on the Ukrainian border. Right. Uh, Paul and I and Matt got together for a conversation about it, and we were in agreement really with Paul's expertise that it was unlikely. Yeah. That things would escalate and here we are today. To, you know, tell mm. me what, what it's been like for you in country. I guess there was kind of denial, I guess. Uh, so while the embassies were being evacuated and it was still quiet, but the intelligence services probably wor- worked much better than the civilian zeitgeist. So the people did not expect this to happen at all in contrast to the professionals who informed their relative authorities in the West, and that's why they evacuated rather early on, uh, whereas civilians stayed, and uh, I felt there was a sense of denial in the general population. Nobody could believe Russia would attack, and it's just something that is totally mind-boggling, makes no sense to a peaceful person who just yeah, to a consumer or to any kind of person who has nothing to do with this imperial ideology that Putin and that they that Russia as a state represents or embodies and that kind of the, the things that they cherish strategically are very alien to the population. And so in Ukraine, 
So it's something that caught us unawares, I think, because there was no preparation for this war. There was no expectation. People started to evacuate maybe on the first day of the war, but certainly a bit later. So that would be my my response. Pablo, one of the things that really is so mind-blowing is that, from what you were saying, it feels like the people in Ukraine were living very normal lives recognizable to us and being told that the Russians are going to invade is just, it's like being told that there's going to be an alien invasion. Yeah, yeah, something something along those lines, right? Yeah, that denial probably is what made, I mean, it's just, it's so... Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's just, uh, it felt out of the blue to us. Because I read about this soldier who was interviewed, but he was one of the civilian defenders in Kiev. And he said that a week ago he was doing his favorite thing to do which is to play playstation <laughs> with his friend and now he's on the front yeah, line yeah, right, right. With a gun. he couldn't account for the change in him either and it really made a huge impression. right the thing is that in ukraine the military and violence is just not a tool we use to do politics. It's not something that is common in Ukraine in terms of political measures, whereas in Russia, it is quite common and something alien to us. So that is basically the tool they regularly use and they are ready to resort to it. We weren't ready for that at all. When you were talking about Putin's imperial ideology, what do you mean by that exactly? What do you think he is just trying to do? What, what is his end game plan? I think I won't be original here. I think they, he wants uh, allegiance of Ukraine or its uh, neutrality, I guess. So that's the uh, minimum. And then uh, ideally something like Belarus, where part of the legitimacy comes from Russia. So part of the, so the interconnections between Russia and Ukraine make it so that part of uh, Ukrainian security its political clout, its economics is totally dependent on Russia and so that Russia has a foothold here and can influence our politics. And the bizarre point that is foundational there is that Putin doesn't see Ukraine as an independent nation, as an independent country. So I think that is foundational to understand that to Putin, Ukraine doesn't exist as a country. It's, it's an extension, extension of Russia. Russia, exactly. It's something that Russia wants to have eventually. This vision is incompatible with the existence of independent sovereign nation of Ukraine. And that makes it so hard to reach any kind of agreement uh, through the coming negotiations because it turns into an extermination war, at least in our perception, in the perception of Ukrainian people. It turns into a war on being Ukrainian, on Ukraine as a country and a people. It's a war of survival for Russia, which views our existence independent of Russia as a threat to its existential threat to their sovereignty. So we need to negotiate and to find a common ground to basically to achieve more freedom for Ukraine and to somehow, I don't know, to make sure that Russia doesn't feel... But I don't see how, how it can be achieved. I think that the point that Ukraine needs some kind of neutrality some kind of we we need friendly relations with russia strategically geopolitically we need that and and perhaps that was a kind of denial as well on in our political politics now we have been denying that for some time now thinking that we don't need that but 
I don't see it that way. I don't I don't see how building an iron curtain can be a good thing. It might be a temporary measure if you imagine Russia as an absolute evil, but if you want to change, if you want security, if you want long-term prosperity, we need better relations with our neighbors. Right now, we are so far from it and we need to work towards towards it. Perhaps we won't achieve it until the death of Putin or maybe until the end of the KGB rule in the political uh, like in the political elites in Russia. But when that comes, I don't know, it might take a decade, maybe two, I don't know. Paul, looking at the current situation as as we get it from our side of the fence, so to speak, what do you think are the next potential moves for a negotiated peace or not? We need to be very clear and, and certainly the evidence at the moment is that the expectation was that it would be over in three or four days. I have to be very cautious with this because obviously a lot of this stuff is unverified, but certainly the head of the FSB uh, and the deputy head of F- FSB that's been undertaking the intelligence gathering to say that this is an achievable aim has been removed. Again, we have to take this with a pinch of salt that a load of parade uniforms were found for the parade in Kiev uh, after sort of day five. Uh, and we also know that the troops were not given adequate provisions for anything longer than, than a week, fuel and provisions, logistics. So everything points towards that, that it was going to be over and, uh, and Kiev would fold, the president would either be killed or flee, and then a puppet regime would be put in place. And I think the hesitancy of the West to provide support uh, was probably born out of their, their own intelligence that it would be over in a few days. The fact that the Ukraine hasn't played that game and has continued to fight and to use the minimal resources that we've provided uh, to good effect. And, of course, their logistics have failed on the Russian side uh, has meant that they're now having to rethink a lot of things. A lot of provocations at the moment. The interesting thing about the uh, the biolabs, the backstory here, the biolabs were, were Soviet. They were, were always there. When the Soviet Union broke down, it was down to the U.S., to decommission them. And many were transferred into the private sector. Uh, so the, the, the idea that they are producing uh, biological weapons is, is not true. They've all been inspected uh, numerous times by international organizations. But it's a good propaganda move, the fact that they were ostensibly being decommissioned by the US. And uh, of course, the, the moot point there is, does it take 25 years to decommission a biolab? I don't know is the answer. The idea of uh, Russia using nuclear bombs or some form of chemical warfare uh, as a threat certainly has had a lot of people in the West step back away from supporting Ukraine as much as they perhaps should do. Uh, and the fiasco with the, uh, the Polish MiGs is proof of that. Currently, status at the moment is they are taking massive casualties, the Russians. They have no food. There is anecdotal evidence that there are many, many that are deserting and going into the fields and looting. We have seen uh, Russian soldiers go into the shops and and looting out of shops and homes for food. So what we're seeing is a a Russian army in complete disarray. The estimate currently is that they've used up somewhere in the region of 30 to 40% of the uh, troops that had surrounded Belarus. 
Belarusian army uh, at the moment has not engaged, uh, mainly because a lot of the officers of Belarus uh, don't particularly want to kill family members who are living in, in the Ukraine. And we are seeing Belarusian r- troops, uh, or certainly volunteers, joining the Ukrainian International Brigade. So where we stand at the moment is Putin has a number of choices. Uh, and what we're seeing is more and more troops coming down from the, uh, the center. We're seeing or, or certainly reported that Syrian volunteers are looking to come across. So they clearly have a manpower issue. And of course, no one in their right mind would commit their entire army just in case somebody decides to attack them. So there will be a, a, a certain reserve that will be left in Russia. Conscription, uh, we know that they use conscripts, and we also know that Putin has announced that he didn't order the use of conscripts. So we know that the families of conscripts that have been killed, and we know that the mothers of soldiers can be a, a very powerful issue in, in Russia when the mothers start saying, where's my son? And we, we certainly saw that after Chechnya. So where we are at the moment is very much a stalemate. We have some gains on both sides. We obviously have a huge amount of pressure, Kiev. Kiev pretty much now is down to about 3 million people. Uh, most people have left. We do have issues down at Mariupol, which is obviously 300,000 people who are completely cut off. And we know that uh, Odessa is certainly one of the main major targets they're looking for. We know the fleet has gone back to Sebastopol, which is interesting uh, because you just cannot keep Marines and, and equipment at sea preparing to land for that long. So they've gone back. And I think what they're hoping to do is to get nearer Odessa and then obviously the the fleet will come in and unload their equipment but we also know in the meantime there's the seas and the beaches are going to be heavily mined. Putin's mind has certainly uh, been under careful scrutiny at the moment and those that have known him well know that he will never apologize and never give up. So I generally do not know what's going to happen other than they're literally just going to pulverize these cities with long-range weapons. Again, another rabbit hole. We're hearing on the logistics side that they've almost run out of long-range missiles. So uh, obviously resupply has to come from somewhere. And so a lot of of generals, again, anecdotal, we're hearing 36 generals have been fired. I think it's four generals have been killed in the war. And so the issue really now is militarily, bearing in mind that his reserves, fuel, logistics, manpower are all grinding to a halt. And Pavlo will probably tell me better what the weather's there, but my understanding at the moment is it's pretty cold. And so troops that are stuck in mud and snow in minus, I think it's about 12 Right, uh, right, it's cold, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't keep them on the front line. You can't keep them fighting in those conditions. You've got at best a rotation of, of 24 hours. And if you haven't got troops to rotate them out of the front line or equipment, and of course, warfare now isn't just infantry. We're looking at tanks, armored personnel carriers. We need air support. It's the whole, whole belt and braces stuff. And if one of those components isn't working well, the rest is, is irrelevant. And again, anecdotal stuff about the amount of planes that Russia's losing, 20 million a pop. I just wanted to ask three things. Right, Firstly, you're talking about the fiasco with the MiGs from Poland. Can you explain to me what yeah. has happened and why it's a fiasco? Okay. 
Secondly, yeah. can you elaborate on the generals being killed? Because I just read that a fourth general yeah, got killed that's right. today. And the third is, when you say the fleet went back to Sebastopol, yeah, you sure. have Well, first that? of all, the MiGs. The story of the MiGs yeah. is that the MiGs were sold to Poland for a dollar each by Germany. And they're sitting there, operational MiGs, uh, MiG-21s. These are MiGs that Germany has had in storage from Cold War. But they're operational. And they've been refitted and retrofitted and stuff like that. And Poland has always wanted F-16s, and, and that, that was the thing. So Poland turned around and said, look, we've got these MiGs. They're operational. They've all been fitted uh, with you know, relatively up-to-date stuff. We're happy, in theory, to, to hand them over to Ukraine. So NATO went, okay, if you want to do it unilaterally, that's down to you. We can't stop you. But as NATO, we're not prepared to do that because we would see that as an escalation. And, and this is the bit that I don't understand, is where do you draw the line of what is and what is not escalation? I would say that Stinger missiles, if anything, or air defense systems, it is, you know, if you're going to go down the road of escalation, I would say that you know, in the eyes of Russia, uh, pretty much any of that, that that blows up a tank or takes out an aircraft. So Poland went, uh, we're not prepared to do it uh, unilaterally. We want it done under NATO. And so America said, look, we're backfill your MiGs. So you, know, you won't be short of aircraft with F-16s. And they went, fantastic. And so you can hand them over. And they went, no, we're not prepared to do it unilaterally. We want to do it through NATO. And so they said, look, we'll fly them to Germany and you can do whatever you want with them. Germany obviously said, we don't want them. We're not going to get into that game because we see it as an escalation and fly them into Ramstein or, or whatever American airbase. Um, and the Americans blinked and that's the end of that. So this is a, the, the bit about how do you define, and I guess there's back channels that talk to the Russians and say, that's a, you know, a red line for us. And if you do that, we're going to destroy the world. I don't know is the answer to, to that, but that's the story of the MiGs. So the MiGs are sitting there and Poland has said, look, you know, if, if Ukrainian wants them, we're happy to give them, but as part of NATO, not unilaterally. Um, the generals is interesting. And on a military point of view, uh, and, and a good general will always be at the front line looking to himself about where the problems lie, talking to the battalion leaders, regimental leaders, etc. The fact that these have been killed so close to the front line means that they, they've had to go forward to inspire regimental leaders who are perhaps bulking at their orders. That's my take. If I see a, a general near the front line it generally means that the battalion commanders, those under, need some sort of bolstering or, <laughs> dare I say, threats, rather than a sort of a radio signal that says, you know, move forward, move forward. And of course, in the Russian army, you know, if anyone that studies the Russian army, the concept of we're losing and, you know, you're not going to go back to the Kremlin and say, look, I'm sorry, I just lost my army. So sometimes the Russians will move forward and the general will move forward with them in a last hurrah simply because the dying on the battlefield is slightly better than, uh, than going back to the Kremlin and getting a, a bullet in the back of the head. At least you're going to get your pension and your wife's going to get your pension. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah. it, it, it is. And, uh, and whilst you know, obviously that, that's a, a work of fiction, 
although the book Enemy at the Gates is not a work of fiction the film is the book is fantastic um, uh, yeah the way of which the russians do war is very much better to die on the battlefield than to lose in shame i'm mm. perhaps reading a little bit more into that i mean it could have been a loose artillery shot that's blown them up in the headquarters that's not what i'm hearing on the streets the amphibious task force that was off uh, odessa which had their marines now marines are pretty good uh, although I'm beginning to wonder whether any of our assessments have been right over the last <laughs> uh, over the last yeah. you know fifty odd years, because well. I don't think they have. One of the things I did many moons ago, I, I was uh, worked in intelligence, uh, and we were down in uh, Ashford, which was where we used to do our training. And the last part of the course, the instructors all dressed up in in Soviet uniforms and gave us what they understood to be how we would go about our work. To, basically understand how the other side think. We talked about Russian tactics and we talked about the whole thing about the third shock army coming across through the folder gap. And um, it was fascinating because we actually really thought that some of their kit was really, really good and the the soldiers were well motivated. And there was a, a great magazine that actually they published in Spanish and French and German and English, which was basically the Soviet equivalent to the soldier magazine. They showed spetsnats, you know, eating hmm. snakes and jumping out of airplanes without parachutes, out, you know, into snow banks and I mean, all this sort of crazy stuff. And we were like, wow, you know, these guys are, we're going to have a really rough time. Fast forward to now, and you're looking at the state of those that are captured and you're thinking, hang on, you've had access to all the West's equipment, training, doctrine you've been to our staff courses because i mean we have been at peace with them for a long time and nothing nothing has rubbed off i mean you've literally gone back to the hordes that took berlin in 45 you know foraging and i mean it's napoleonic almost so pavlo in ukraine at the moment what is the general feeling about how the west is reacting to the situation oh it's a hard to, for me to generalize, I, I would say that, yeah, it's, so I, I will provide just my perspective. As far as I see that, there has been a great response internationally, and uh, uh, that is very much appreciated, especially in terms of sanctions and in terms of the cost uh, that has been imposed on Russia for its aggression. So that would be my perception. And the general feeling is that there has been great support at the same time there is frustration that that hasn't been enough especially with the plane fiasco that uh, they ne they never got delivered and then there has been a, i think a strong campaign which is unrealistic and also no fly zone i think it has received a lot of publicity in ukrainian media and ukrainian officials have advocated it and have demanded it from the west but like I can read, I can read, and I see that it means World War Three, and so I I understand that it's just a euphemism for a war over the uh, supremacy in the Ukrainian airspace between um, NATO planes and Russian planes, and that's not a good idea. Perhaps this kind of escalation would probably kill millions of people here. So I don't want another Korean War in my country, and I think that potential for escalation is not realized by the politicians in Ukraine, that uh, a stronger confrontation, more military involvement, more military engagement 
will mean more civilian losses. And I think that this is something that some people realize, like me, and others just cheer on total war. I think there is a feeling that there has been great support from the West, and there is a feeling of disappointment that there are armaments have not arrived, some of which are planes and others. And people like me feel actually frustrated that in terms of negotiations and de-escalation of the situation, not much is being done currently, and that would prevent loss of life. So I'm disappointed. We're all under the impression that tons of armaments have been delivered to help the mm. Ukrainians. Is, is that true or is that just wrong? I, th I think that's my impression too. So thousands of, uh, of anti-tank weapons. So th that's, yeah, they've arrived and I think they have been very much in the news. I think the feeling is that firstly, the planes and secondly, the anti-aircraft weapons beyond just stingers. So something that is, that is more uh, systemic, something along the lines of patriots. So that's what the ambition is, let's say. That's what they expect so that the airspace can be protected. And they're feeling that the, there is no protected airspace and that vulnerability is costly to the Ukrainian army and to the civilians as well. So that is the feeling, because I think only Kiev has proper anti-aircraft defenses right now functioning, more or less, Oh, I mean, to some extent, whereas Kharkiv, Chernihiv, and many other places have been now shelled to rubble, and that's something that could have been prevented, perhaps, by functioning air defense systems. But that had to happen before the war, I guess. Sorry for these endless questions. <laughs> just it's that's kind of what a podcast is, Matt, is questions, and then people answer them. <laughs> it's just a thrill for me to be able to actually get straight to the source and just actually get information that I know is right. Can you explain the deal with the convoy? What's the convoy, the 40-mile convoy, and what's happening to it? There was no 40-mile convoy. Later, it was clarified that it was a two- or three-mile convoy, and it was a misinterpretation. So that was a misunderstanding. There is no <laughs> endless convoy. It's definitely organized now, and in the south, I guess, in the north, in the northwest of Kiev, that's where the part of their forces are. And, but I don't know much more beyond that. I know that first it was shocking when we read it, like 40-mile convoy that got lost somewhere or uh, this is strategically meaningless that they are stretching out. But th that's just not true. It was not 40 miles. It was perhaps two and a half miles. It's still silly, but it's not the way that it was reported. And now I think today or yesterday there were images that they have dispersed around that area. So they are in a different formation now, as far as I... So right, that's what right. I heard. Because it was just sort of used as evidence of the disorganization. Exactly, exactly right. That they are, are stretched out in one line and so vulnerable from the air. But uh, yeah, it was not 40 miles long. One of the things through all this, and I think that um, historians will certainly pick up on, is the information war is being won by Ukraine. And certainly as far as their leadership, their the wins, the methodology in which the, the information is being passed over to the West is certainly uh, far exceeds anything that's coming out of Russia. I mean, Russia, even yesterday, Lavrov said, no, we haven't invaded. And you just think, okay, it's uh, obviously all blue screened. So I think the information war, the strategic communications and what we used to call propaganda, although you know, in this case, I think it's uh, well-founded, 
uh, its usage is certainly being won by Ukraine. Some of it comes from the fact that suddenly the speeches by Putin and the accolades, so the people around him, are taken seriously in the West. And actually, there is proper translation of what they are saying. And suddenly it dawns on people, oh, wow, Putin actually doesn't think that Ukraine is a country. Oh, wow. Like, they, they actually take it seriously. Before, I think there was a tendency to dismiss it as nonsense. And now people actually pay attention to that. And translation facilitates that understanding of this uh, right, of, of, of this militaristic or imperialistic view that is expressed. And I think there is more attention to it. I also think that there is a danger of sometimes the propaganda going like too extreme. So, and then that is an issue. I, I guess Ukrainians sometimes sound unrealistic. Sometimes they do. And it's just a matter of war. The problem is that the ob- objective reporting went out of the window with the war state in Ukraine. That is a problem. That is something I want to hear different uh, views. I want to hear objective information. But now, let's say we have TV channels united into one huge program with one line of argument. And while, as you have pointed out, we have been able to get information through, but I am afraid that because of this alignment, In our media, we risk misleading the public uh, ourselves, and I am afraid it's hard to introduce checks and balances when there are no different channels. It's just one organized war effort. So that's something I really miss, objective reporting and, yeah, the mobilization of news. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Pavle, my daughter, um, she's 11. She, the other night, woke up after having had a nightmare and came into our bed in floods of tears because she dreamt that the Russians were invading. And then she proceeded to ask a number of quite challenging questions about Ukraine and what it's like to have your country invade and what it's like to be displaced from your home and have your home destroyed and so on. It struck me that we in the West have lived in almost total peace, really, uh, for many, many years. Right. In Ukraine, have you lived with an element of fear with Russia next door, or has this been a total shock? And my second question within that is, how are young people dealing with the reality of their bubble, which I'm guessing is now more and more international with the advent of the internet and so on, being totally shattered? That's a great question. So I I have to say that I have lived uh, with this conflict since 2014, so it was not a total shock because I have already left my home I had left Luhansk before this next stage of this war. So for us, for my family, the war started in 2014, and it was just brewing all this time. And some people, some civilians, turn a blind eye to that, and they build their bubbles. And like here in Lviv, for example, I'm staying in places which look ignorant of the conflict. And there is very, very little realization of what's happening. Even in 2014, during the conflict then, I think Paul remembers that too. You could just go to a cafe and the atmosphere would be, would be cheerful. People would be just uh, having fun. But that was in 2014. I think that's, that's the difference now. With this full-scale invasion, that spirit, that ability to ignore the conflict 
is out of the, it's like out of the question it's not happening now people are genuinely stressed out and and there is a barrage of news that's one thing i noticed several days ago i actually like repeated news now because it means nothing new has happened like no new tragedies like if they repeat the news it means that within that 20 minute time slot nothing terrible has happened that's good actually but but that's what we are being uh right now exposed to that is non-stop news of destruction devastation and people fleeing and so generally it's highly traumatic for the population for people and what i felt was that when i stayed indoors during the first days of the war in kiev uh, even though i heard explosions in the distance i was really stressed out because uh, the bomb shelter was a bit far from my place and uh, my dad didn't want to go there and so i stayed indoors just in my apartment uh, and slept in the uh, in the hallway away from windows and i lived there in an apartment building which was like 16 storied apartment building and i was on the floor so there were 10 floors above me and i thought well if a bomb like if a shell falls down i'll i might be buried just like that and so i was really distraught and helpless i felt helpless whereas when we started to move to lviv so we started to move even though we exposed ourselves to more danger because we went through checkpoints we went closer to the kind of contact with the russian army because we went south and then west and so we kind of right moved around that conflict area so perhaps we exposed ourselves to more danger but because we were doing something i felt relief so i would say that when you are doing something it's much more manageable the, and many yeah. people are in no position to do something about it that helplessness is absolutely crushing i mean there are volunteers there are people doing things and i think that's helps people do better as well pavlo thank you so much for joining today it's been heart-wrenching hearing you talk but also it's fantastic that you're well thank you that the people of ukraine are arm in arm with each other and I think, you know, certainly the message from, from England and people like myself who are just everyday people, you know, if there's any way we can help, we will help, much as that's difficult to realise sometimes. It's yeah. heartbreaking to see. Let's and hope there will be peace soon. Let's hope there right, will be peace. Right, yeah. Uh, and really, we wish you all the very best. I'm really honoured that you could come onto the podcast, Pablo, as well, as well as Paul again, obviously. And um, I'm even farther away than Matt or Paul. It really feels like it's probably the most important thing that's going on in the last 20 years and it and seems so recognizable because the people going through it are just right so recognizable. yeah exactly it's, it's something it's it's paradoxical exactly as you say it's something historical and you don't want to be here absolutely yeah. absolutely true <laughs> and there's a, i think there's a real feeling in the uk right. that our lives are starting to change as well we don't know how and we don't know what that's coming next but there's a real feeling that things are changing and we don't know whether that's going to get progressively worse or or not you know so seeing what's happening over in ukraine is um is sobering to say the least but keep fighting the good fight as they say and let's try and continue to talk about it i think it's really important that we hear your voice and the voice of those around you you know my pleasure thank you i mean it, and just for some context here in hollywood two russia invasion shows have been pitched last week 
is having an effect here as well. Ukraine has already uh, been an inspiration for the Chernobyl series, right? Chernobyl 2. Right, yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking while you were talking, mm. if, if there's a way that you think that people listening, if there's a good way that they could help, please tell us so that we can publicize it. Oh, that's wonderful. Totally. I think I think there are some local groups perhaps organizing and doing something. Um, so you should check out. If you ask me personally, I donated money to the Ukrainian Red Cross. So you could check them out. Ukraine Red Cross, they're a new, neutral organization helping civilians. And you can see millions of people right now suffering and on the move and humanitarian corridors being organized. So I think that's the organization to support right now. And if your local groups, lo political groups, are doing something for the Ukrainian cause, please check them out and organize and get in touch with people locally. I, I think they can make a difference too. And together, I think you can you can support us. Can, Thank can you. I just make an observation? Because uh, I have a great love for the Ukraine, the country and the people. Pavlo has been through what I think none of us have ever wanted to or wished or, or even in our wildest nightmares gone through. And yet... He's given money to the Red Cross, even though he's lost everything. And I think if there is a statement that sums up the Ukrainian people, that's it. And that's why we need to do everything we possibly can to support them. Thank you, Paul, for your kind words. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to Pavlo for his time and honesty. We have tried to engage with Pavlo again for a follow-up. And although I'm pleased to say that he's safe and well, the worsening situation in Ukraine is making it increasingly difficult for us to record with him. So please, please donate to the Red Cross and do what you can to help. Even small donations all add up and may well be the difference between life and death for some of the people affected. All the information you'll need to be able to donate will be in the show notes for this episode. This was straight from the hot tap.